If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched Goodwill Hunting so that we can study sequences. This 1997 film was directed by Gus Van Sant from an original screenplay by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And before we get started, we would love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page, scroll to the bottom, and that's it. Alrighty, Melanie, what do you have for the genre of Goodwill Hunting? Well, this week I've got the global and internal genre as a status sentimental story because I think it's exploring the nature and definition of what it means to be successful. And then for the external genre, which I, it's not that strong and I think we could have picked a couple of things, but I picked a love story because I, I like that. I think it's because I just like that part of the movie as well. What did you have? Wow, that's not a good enough reason to call that the secondary <laughs> genre. I just have to say that right now. <laughs> so I think the global genre is a worldview story, maybe a maturation, maybe an education. I didn't really dig down deeply enough into it, but it's definitely an internal genre story, which means it's a character-driven story, so we agree on that. The secondary genre, is it could be a performance story. I'm not entirely sure. Again, because I didn't, there were so many other things I wanted to get to, um, and you're the lead this week, so I just, I just kind of did that. Now, the love story is a subplot. It's a subplot. That's all I have to say about that right now. Melanie, dive in. Right, and I, I to be honest, I'm not really like you. It wasn't really, it didn't matter so much to me this week. So I just, um, I just took a, a guess. So I'm not overly worried about, but whether I'm right or wrong. But okay, because uh, there is a lot in this movie, and it's I thought it was a really good movie, especially from a sequences perspective. So I'm really enjoying my study of sequences this season. I am learning something different every week, and I'm actually very excited that I get to share a lot of what we talk about on the podcast. So I'm excited when we come into each recording. Analyzing Goodwill Hunting surprised me because everything was going well for my first attempt to identify the sequences right up until the midpoint of the movie. And the sequences are pretty good at sticking to the 14, 15 minute breakpoints, which was helpful. But this produced a curious result. So I think we'd all agree that Will Hunting is the protagonist of the story. And in the first half, so the first four sequences, the progression of the complications belong to Will at the end of the sequences. That's all good and as expected, but after this point, the story becomes about Will, Jerry the professor, and Sean the psychologist. The conflict between Sean and Jerry starts to take over the storyline in the second half of the movie. 
And this was really evident when I was looking at Will's big breakup scene with Skylar because I thought that was going to be come at the end of a sequence so there would be a sequence break because it's a big point in the movie and I think it's huge. But it's not a sequence break. The next scene where Will taunts the professor by burning the piece of paper with a new proof on it is the sequence break. And this is where Will states his dilemma for the professor. He doesn't want to spend the rest of his life explaining things to people because he hates watching other people stumble around things that he finds very easy. And from a cumulative point of view, the breakup with Skylar and the truth about the maths work show Will's distress and how upside down his world has become. So it's, an, it's a, a cumulative effect that gets us to that, that, that point, that crisis point for Will. And this was also surprising because Will's greatest challenge in the story, I think, is about being vulnerable and letting Skylar in. And that's why I probably focused too much on that storyline while I was doing my analysis. But before I go any deeper, I'll summarise summarize each sequence, again, by identifying the single central action. So in sequence one, I've got Will solves the difficult maths problem. In sequence two, the professor gives Will a lifeline on two conditions. In sequence three, Will meets Sean the psychologist. In sequence four, Sean breaks through only to be called out by Will. In sequence five, it's the fight for Will's future. Sequence six, Will starts to blow stuff up. And that's metaphorically and a little bit physical as well. And in sequence seven, Will wants the status quo, but Chuck knows better. And in sequence eight, I've got it as to work for O'Neill's or to go and see about a girl. So the change in conflict caught me off guard this week. So I asked myself a question. So the question was, is the story being told properly if the protagonist isn't the key person in the sequence? And the answer that I came up with was yes and no. (laughs) So it depends, (laughs) which I feel a bit guilty about because sometimes I feel that that's a cop out, but I do think it's appropriate in this instance. So... Every unit of story has a protagonist and an antagonist. The protagonist of all the sequences or scenes or acts doesn't have to be the story's protagonist. And why? Well, it comes down to who generates the conflict and who is subject to the conflict. So stories are about conflict And we as writers should understand who is generating the conflict and who is actually the recipient or on the the receiving end of the conflict in every unit of story. And it doesn't have to be the same. So Will doesn't always own the conflict in the story. There are times when the greater conflict is between Jerry and Sean with the role of the protagonist switching between those two characters. There are also times when Will is the antagonist in his relationship with Sean and Jerry. So one example of this is when Will is analysing the painting of the rower in Sean's office. Will insults Sean's wife 
and Sean grabs Will by the throat and tells him he's never to insult his wife again. So in this scene, Will is the antagonist and Sean is the protagonist. The change in protagonist for the scenes and sequences doesn't change the overall protagonist for the story, and this works as long as the conflict is centred around the story's theme. And the greatest value shift or change in the story is in the protagonist, which I think is the case in Goodwill Hunting. So I chose status for the global genre this week because, like I mentioned, I believe the theme of Goodwill Hunting is centred around the idea of success. When I struggled with understanding why the climactic point of sequences was not owned by Will, I went back to the core emotion of that genre and the value scale of the genre. The global value scale ranges in the, from the negative, where the option is to sell out, or to the positive, which is to be successful. The conflict between Sean, Jerry and Will is about the definition of success. It means different things to all three of these characters. Will could choose the same path as either man, depending on what he wants. So when I realised this, it was a eureka moment for me. The conflict between Sean and Jerry is about Will and whose definition of success Will will choose. There's lots of wills this week. <laughs> I find myself tripping over them. <laughs> so it's Will's central question that is resolved in the movie and it's not Jerry's or Sean's choices. So I think it's pretty clear that Will won't choose Jerry's definition of success because Will's knowledge of maths is far greater than Jerry's. Will doesn't get excited about any of the career options available to him if he pursued Jerry's chosen path. So Will's choice is possibly to stay where he is and to be with Chucky and the crew for the rest of his life. They are his family and they love him in their own way. Or he could follow Skylar, move into state and into the unknown, and that is the risky choice for Will. Now, I did play around with the idea that Goodwill Hunting is a mini plot or a cross between an arch plot and a mini plot. And you mentioned this, Valerie, in your analysis of Sliding Doors episode, in the Sliding Doors episode. So do you think we could say the same thing about Goodwill Hunting? God, no. Goodwill Hunting is an arc plot story. Well, it just came from just looking at where the conflict was sitting in the story. And it was quite obvious to me that there were arcs for each of the um for each of those characters. And it just when you started to see the amount of screen time that was given to the Jerry and Sean conflict, you could put forward some idea that there were like, and I know that we could break it down very simply and be um, subplots, but it did, as I was trying to work through this and work through that problem, it was just something that crossed my mind because they do take up, especially in the second part of the movie, a lot of screen time with that relationship between Sean and Jerry. So it just, like I said, it just crossed my mind as a possibility. I actually didn't think that at any point that the story was not about Will's story and about his journey, but in terms of it switching focus, it did make me wonder. Okay. It's an interesting intellectual exercise and a good one, a valuable one to sort of pick a story up and twist it around 
and test it to see, does it fit another mold? However, that said, for my money, Goodwill Hunting is an arc plot story. Uh, the love story between Will and Skylar is a subplot, and the Jerry Sean story is a subplot. So there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I just thought I'd ask the question because I did find I did enjoy thinking about it this week and and trying to, like you said, dice, slice it and dice it a different way and see see that how that came out. All right, so the change in protagonists of the scenes in Goodwill Hunting highlighted an essential concept in sequences. And some of the action of the previous sequences are resolved in the present sequence. But these resolutions usually open up new problems and conflicts which need to be resolved in subsequent sequences. So, for example, in sequence four, which I've called Sean Breakthrough, only to be called out by Will, it consists of the following scenes and the, I'm going to break down the, what I think the questions and the answers are for each of these scenes and show how they build to the climactic moment in the sequence. So Will and Skylar go on a date. She says she's leaving to go to another university in three months. They kiss. The question, will Will ask Skylar out, has been answered. The new question is, because we can see how these two get along, but she's leaving. So the question is, what will happen? Will they develop a relationship? In the next scene, Sean takes Will to the park and explains he's got Will's number. He knows what Will is doing and why, and it's up to Will to talk. Sean leaves Will on the park bench. The essence of the discussion is about vulnerability, which indirectly links to the budding relationship with Skylar. The question that is resolved from the, from the first meeting between Sean and Will is, how will Sean deal with someone like Will? And we see what Sean does. And then the new question is, or the new questions are, will Will open up to Sean and will he be vulnerable with Skylar? In the next scene, Will and Chucky are working and then we see Will go to call Skylar, but he can't speak to her. So we know he likes her but something is holding him back. So the question becomes, will he see her again? And then the next scene, when Will is in Sean's office, he doesn't say a word. They get to the time, the hour, it's up and he leaves. And we know that Will has to be there, but he's playing the game just like he did with the other psychs. Will doesn't want to open up to Sean is the answer from the previous scene, so he doesn't want to do it. But the new question is, who is going to break first? We then move to Sean talking to Jerry about the game that Will is playing. Sean says that he's not going to speak first. So the question becomes, are we going to see Will speak first? Will shows his, in the next scene, Will shows his mathematical superiority over Jerry and others and he walks out. So our question becomes, how gifted is Will and where will this gift lead him? And then finally, we see Sean and Will sitting in Sean's office again. Sean nods off and then Will speaks up and tells Sean about Skylar and how he hasn't spoken to her because he doesn't want to ruin anything. So this answers two questions. Then Sean tells Will about his wife and about what it's like to be loved and to love. 
He wants Will to be aware that he can make the same choices. So Will challenges the flaw in Sean's logic. Since Sean's wife died, he's closed himself off. He doesn't do the things that he's telling Will to do. The questions that are raised are, can Will call Skylar and be true to himself and have something that's truly of value? We, are also, we also suspect this could put Will's maths career in jeopardy because Skylar is leaving Boston, so which will he choose? And the other question is, will Sean open himself up again? So everything in this sequence is centred around the two subplots, Will and Skylar's budding relationship, and how will Sean differ from the other psychologists? They both progress but also contribute to the big conflict in the final scene of this sequence. Sean has broken through Will's defences and can help him with Skylar, but Will calls out Sean for being hypocritical and not living his life fully as a result of his wife dying. So it's quite an interesting exercise to look at the scenes in a sequence and look at how they answer questions but also create new ones. The climax of this sequence is also a good example of how to use all the preceding scenes to build to conflict between two characters. Will and Sean challenge each other and both will be better off for it by the end of the movie. So, Valerie, that's a bit of a deep dive into one of the sequences that I wasn't expecting to go down that path, but I thought it was a really valuable exercise. But I'm really keen to see how you went with your analysis of beginning and ending this week. It went pretty well, I think. All right, I want to start by revisiting a concept that I introduced uh, in episode two of the season. That was the episode we did on the Born Identity. And it comes from Stephen Pressfield. He has a book called Ins and Outs, Thoughts on the Opening and Closing Images in Movies and Fiction. And in it, he discusses how the first scene and the last scene of a story mirror one another. So with respect to the first and last scenes of a story, Pressfield says, the opening and closing images of our story should look as alike as reasonably possible. But at the same time, the out should be as far away as we can make it in emotional and narrative terms from the in. Both the in and the out must be on theme. All right. Uh, Stephen Pressfield actually uses Goodwill Hunting as an example. So in the opening scene, Chucky pulls up to Will's house, knocks on the door, Will comes out, and they drive to work. In the last scene, Chucky pulls up to Will's house, knocks on the door, but Will is no longer there. Now, what Pressfield doesn't say is that this ending is telegraphed earlier in the film. At the start of the final act, Chucky actually states what he wishes would happen. He says that Will has a responsibility to fulfill his potential, if not for himself, then for his friends and the other guys in South Boston who have no hope of escaping. He says that he dreams of going up to Will's apartment one day, knocking on the door and discovering that Will has just left without a word. He's just gone. Now, as cool as this is, it's only one part of how this mirroring concept works. Now, I've got a lot of theory books, <laughs> and each season I pull a bunch of them off my shelves and I dig through them to learn what I can about the storytelling principle that I'm studying in that season. But you may have noticed that I don't recommend very many of them. Well, this week I do have a theory book to recommend. It's called 
Into the Woods, How Stories Work and Why We Tell Them. And it's written by John York. York explains that it's not just the first and last scene that are a mirror of each other. It's the entire first act and last act. So the whole act, the first and last in their entirety, are mirror images. Now, the reason this is important is that it provides balance and symmetry. So how does that work in practical terms? Well, York says that while few works attain a perfect state, Writing and rewriting tend to sculpt a work so it more clearly reproduces a classical shape. And a classical shape, that's an arcpot story. It's another way of talking about an arcpot story. York gives a couple of examples in his book, and one of them is The Social Network, which is an Aaron Sorkin film. All right. If you haven't seen that movie, put it on your to-be-watched list. It's, uh, it's worth it. So in the first act of The Social Network... Mark is dumped by Erica. Then he works on Face Mash and he enlists Eduardo. And then the Winklevoss twins invite Mark to join them. So that's sort of walking into the story in the first act. Now, if we fast forward to the last act, we have those three steps, but in reverse. The Winklevoss twins sue Mark. Then Mark works on Facebook and he sacks Eduardo. And then he tries to make friends with Erica, Facebook friends with Erica. All righty. So let's take that concept of York's and apply it to Goodwill Hunting and see what happens. Well, in the first act, we have Chucky arrives, Will is waiting. That's the in, what Pressfield calls the in of a story. Then we have Will solving the math equation. This is an expression of his gift, and he quits his job as a janitor. Then we have Will asking Skylar out, and then Will starting therapy. In the last act, we have Will breaking up with Skylar, Will finishing therapy, Will giving up his prestigious job where he can fully express his gift to be with Skylar. Now, presumably, he will be getting another job in California, one that enables him to express his gift fully. That's sort of the sense I got, although... I can't remember if that's explicitly stated. And finally, then we have Chucky arriving at Will's uh, apartment, but he's gone. That's the out that I talked about a minute ago. So they're almost a mirror image. The only thing is that in the beginning, we have Will asking Skylar out and then him starting therapy. According to York's concept, then he should finish therapy first and then break up with Skylar. But that's okay. It, uh, it works. It works fine, especially since he does eventually go to be with Skylar. So, you know, Goodwill Hunting is not an exact mirror like the social network example, but all the elements are still there. There's even a repeating image of the rower. I don't know, Melanie, if you picked that one up. In the first act, there's a rower rowing (laughs) and it's Dawn. And in the last act, you've got the rower again, but it's dusk. Now, rowing can be a metaphor for someone being in charge of their own life or their destiny. And it makes me think of the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley, which is my favorite poem. And it ends with uh, these two lines. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I mean, you're not really a captain if you're rowing a boat, but you know, like we're in the ballpark there. 
All right, Melanie, what do you think of this whole mirror mirroring concept? Are you buying it at all? Well, I am buying it because I, you know, without actually realizing it, I have seen variations of this in many stories and by now focusing on it and thinking about it, yes, I can I can see that. And I think like there are some times when the there is a direct mirroring of events, but other times it can be returning to the same place, but the character is different. And then other times the mirror is about the similarities and the differences via metaphor and you identified this in the born identity. So I, I can see this. But the thing, again, I've, I've gone very measured, I think, this week. <laughs> but the interesting thing about the term mirroring, mirroring is that mirrors when they're in stories, can be symbolic of reflections or distortions. And I wonder if there are times when we see distortions when comparing beginnings and endings, and if so, what does that mean? And as I've listened to you this season, the one phrase that really resonates with me more than any other is that the beginning and the ending must rhyme. And to me, this means that there must be something that's common between them. They don't necessarily have to be the same, but they have to be similar in some way. So I have a sneaky question for you. Have you thought about the ending of your novel while you've been writing the beginning of it or vice versa? Yes. Yes, I have. Uh, so I'm working on a book called Immortal right now, and I am absolutely working with the beginning and the ending as a unit together. Everything that I've been discussing this season and in the previous two seasons, I'm putting into practice in my own work, 100%. And with respect to the mirrors and the distortion, I, I don't know the answer because I hadn't thought about it that way. Okay, let me see if I can explain this, if I'm understanding you correctly. If we talk about mirrors as images within the storytelling, that's one thing. But here, the mirroring of the structure, I think, is a totally different concept. I'm not convinced that, that it works the same way, although it could. <laughs> Cause, because I'm, I'm just thinking through the theory now. I haven't actually studied it. Uh, but to me, these are two different concepts. And the reason I'm taking a minute to clarify this is because story theory is riddled with exactly this kind of thing, where we have one word or term that has many different applications. And it's really important for us in our study of theory, and as we're trying to figure out how this whole, you know, how the heck do we write a book anyway, it's important for us to take a minute and think about the term that we're hearing or we're using. Does it have many definitions and can I take the definition and in one area and apply it to the other? So just because I know, I understand Melanie, what you're saying about mirrors and distortions of mirrors within a story, I have to think about whether that translates over to the structure of a story. I, I don't think it would, but then I could be wrong. I don't know. And it just in terms of um, the rhyming, that's another really good point that you bring up. And I want to pause on it for a minute uh, because you're right. Um, John York uses the term mirroring. Stephen Pressfield uses the term mirroring. So that's what I've been using. However, I have also seen lots of other theory books use this term rhyming. 
And I think it's the same concept. As far as I can tell, it's the same concept. If thinking about the beginning and the ending as rhyming makes more sense to you or to anybody listening, go for it. Absolutely go for it. If mirroring is a concept that helps you understand this better, use that one. All righty. Back to beginnings and endings. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about the first act posing a question and the last act answering the question. Now, to use the born identity as an example, the first act is posing the question, who is this man? Like the character, we're thinking in terms of his name, where he lives, and what he does for a living. And yes, we do find those things out in the course of the story. But the last act provides the true answer to the question, and it's this. Our identity is not tied up in the physical trappings. Our identity is what we choose it to be. So, the beginning of a story asks a question, the ending of a story answers that same question that has been posed in the beginning. Now, when I say it like this, it sounds obvious, but trust me, it is not. There are an awful lot of books and movies that start out telling us one story and posing one question at the beginning, and then they kind of take a right hook <laughs> and they shoot off in an entirely different direction. And I think it's because we get lost in the middle build. That's a danger. Here's a great exercise to try. And it is, it's a really powerful one. I've done it myself many times and it's a real eye opener. It's a lesson in how to read books or watch movies actively. So here's what I want you to do. After the first act of the book or the movie, stop reading or watching and see if you can guess the ending. Now, whatever you do, if you're watching a movie, do not say what you think the ending is out loud because I can guarantee you the people you're watching the movie with will not appreciate it. This is a really quick way to get the popcorn thrown at you. Not that I know that from experience, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> from the beginning of Goodwill Hunting, we're expecting that Will's math skills will somehow help him get out of the slums he's living in. We're expecting the therapy sessions to give him a breakthrough, and we're expecting that the romance between Will and Skylar will have a happy ending. And of course, all of those things come true. Coming back to what Melanie asked me then, as writers, we need to understand that the beginning of our stories point our readers in a particular direction. The beginning telegraphs the end. And in doing so, it sets up expectations in the minds of our reader or viewer. The beginning is setting up the end, and the ending is paying off the beginning. Alrighty, Melanie, what do you have for today's action step? Well, today's action step, I think, is a good it's a good exercise and one that I went through in the episode today, and it is to identify a sequence. And then look at each of the scenes in that sequence and just identify what questions have been answered and then what questions each scene is actually asking and then see where those questions are resolved and then what new questions are created as you move through the sequence to that climactic point. So give it a go. I found it very helpful and I think you would too. 
And that wraps it up for this week. Join us again next week when we discuss Guardians of the Galaxy. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And you can now also find me on TikTok, God help me, at Valerie Francis author. If you'd like to find out more about Melanie, visit melaniehill.com.au or visit her on Facebook at Melanie Hill author. And remember, story theory does not have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.